Psalm 121 is uh, one of my favourite psalms and uh, it begins with a question. Let me tell you the question. Psalm 121 begins like this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It's the question of a wandering pilgrim. Uh, a pilgrim who is one of the people of God, a pilgrim in need. And maybe, maybe as the pilgrim walks, the surrounding hills look like a tempting refuge. Or maybe they are the potential source of even greater hazard. Or maybe it's just as the pilgrim walks, it's just the size of the mountains that impose themselves on the pilgrim. But whatever it is, it prompts the question, where does my help come from? I wonder when the last time was that that question was your question. Where does my help come from? I would guess not too long. Because we too, of course, are pilgrims, pilgrims who need help. And given the character of life in this broken creation, this fallen world with all of its challenges and hardships and difficulties, in the midst of all of those things, it's not too long, I reckon, until the question needs to be asked And asked again, where does my help come from? Maybe it's the way things aren't working out the way you expected. Maybe it's the way things aren't the way that you want them to be. Maybe it's still being single. Maybe it's the marriage that seems more hard work than joy. Maybe it's the job. Or maybe it's the lack of a job. Maybe it's the kids. Maybe it's the financial pressure that you feel yourself to be under. Maybe it's the illness, the disease. Maybe it's the uncertainty. Maybe it's not any one particular thing. Maybe it's just that altogether life just seems to be wearing you down. But maybe even this morning, even right now, perhaps somewhere in your heart and your mind is lurking the question, where does my help come from? Perhaps one of the reasons I like Psalm 121 so much is that it gives permission to even ask the question. And interestingly, the writer of the psalm, he knows the answer. In fact, he answers it in the very next sentence of the psalm. It's okay to ask the question. It's really important, though, that we answer it correctly and our passage today in 1 Samuel helps us to do just that the question bubbling through and around these chapters this morning is so often our question it's the question where does my help come from and our chapters really show us both the wrong way and the right way to answer it so make sure you have your bible open at 1 Samuel chapter 8 I figure, of course, we're great at Morning Church. Five chapters of 1 Samuel is no challenge to us. But it'd be good to have your Bible open and uh, have an outline handy because that's going to be a bit of our mud map. But let's pray and ask for God's help to answer the question correctly from his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your true and living word. And Father, we come to you this morning as pilgrims who so often need help. And our question, Father, is where does our help come from? And we'd like your help into answering it correctly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Point one on your outline, and uh, chapter eight begins, I hope you noticed as uh, Earl read it for us, it actually begins with a strange sense of deja vu. Think about that as I read the first three verses. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Got that sense of deja vu? Yeah, I hope so. A leader with two sons who left a lot to be desired. And I'm hoping you're thinking, hang on, that's just like Eli back at the beginning of the book. It's almost like an Eli replay. It seems a very strange lack of judgment by Samuel on display here which picks up that idea that I think Earl mentioned, that so often our human characters in the Bible make dumb choices. You've got to be very careful as to who you choose as role models. But it's a strange lack of judgment by Samuel, and it causes the elders of Israel concern because they're scared. And it's it's not actually revealed to us here, but later in chapter 12, we'll get to it, but later in chapter 12, we're told that Israel was at this time under serious military threat. Nahash, who was the king of the Ammonites, was on the move westwards and he was looking to conquer Israel. And he was a nasty piece of work, as we'll see later on. And the Israelite elders were scared. They're hearing news of Nahash's military maneuvers and they're worried. They needed help. And the help they needed was that of a leader, a strong leader. And all they could see was Samuel's two dishonest unjust sons and hopefully the tragedy of their error is clear to you already hopefully you can spot their blindness but it becomes even clearer as we read verse 4 so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah they said to him you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have they want a king they're being attacked by a king And they want a king like all the other nations. They want a king to help them. They want a king to protect them and to lead them. And their request is foolish and tragic on a number of levels, isn't it? I mean, Israel from its very beginning, from its very birth, was never meant to be like all the other nations. Out of all the nations on the earth, the Lord had chosen Israel to be set apart from the other nations, to be his treasured, different possession they were to be holy they were to be separate they were to be different because they belonged to the lord do you notice though the elders they wanted a king to be like the other nations suddenly the light goes on on our dashboard foolish tragic but even worse you know they already had a king they already had a king verse 6 But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but me. They have rejected me as their king. I imagine the Lord speaking those last words there with a sad sigh. A sad sigh. Israel is rejecting him. The nation whom he chose for himself, the nation whom he had rescued from slavery in Egypt, was rejecting him again. 
And it wasn't so much that asking for a king was wrong. If anything, the Old Testament anticipates the coming of kingship in Israel. Remember Hannah in her prayer back in chapter 2? She anticipated the king, the anointed one. Having a king wasn't essentially wrong, but the motive in asking for the king here, that's what's wrong. It's a question of confidence or a question of a lack of confidence. The Israelites wanted to put their confidence in a human monarch, in a human form of leadership. It betrayed their lack of confidence in the Lord. See, they were seeking help, but in all the wrong places. They had forgotten already the, cha- the, the lessons of the previous chapters. Remember, the Lord had delivered them from the Philistines. Who is Nahash, king of the Ammonites, in comparison to the Lord? This is the Lord who can break the bows of the warriors. This is the Lord who shatters those who oppose him. This is the Lord who guards the feet of his people. You're old, Samuel. Your sons are wicked. We need help. We need a leader. Appoint us a king to lead us, just like all the other nations. A terrible, foolish, tragic, stupid request. And so the Lord goes on in verses 10 to 18 to warn them about what the human king will be like. And if you glance down through those verses, you'll see there's a word that keeps on getting repeated. It's the word take. Take. This is what the king will do, the Lord warns. He'll take. He'll take your sons. He'll take your daughters. He'll take your fields. He'll take your grain. He'll take your servants. He'll take your flocks. He'll take even the Israelites themselves. He'll take. And we know, don't we, that's what human leadership is always like. So often what characterizes earthly leadership is that they take. Our leaders become leaders so often because of what's in it for them. We want to be a leader because of what we can get out of it. But the Lord, of course, is a king who gives. And we, from where we spot, we stand sorry, in our privileged spot on the, on the Bible timeline, from our privileged spot, we know that, don't we? We know the Lord to be the one who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. The Lord is the very opposite of the human king who takes. The Lord gives. But the Israelites wanted none of him. They were hardened in their rejection of the Lord. They refused to listen to the warning. Have a look at verse 19 of chapter 8. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted a king to lead them just like all the other nations. They wanted to put their confidence in a human king. And a bit strangely, perhaps to our ears, the Lord relents. Verse 21 When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. The Israelites had rejected the Lord as their king. They wanted an earthly king, a human king, to save them from their fears. And the Lord chooses to give them that king. And I reckon, as the readers of 1 Samuel, our, our big question surely are, is this going to work? Why would the Lord give them a king? Who would this king be? And we need to keep reading, of course, to discover the answers. Point two on your outline, and chapter 9 and verse 1. 
Let me read. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphir of Benjamin. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. That's a pretty dramatic scene change, isn't it? Now, close up on a farming family who've lost their donkeys. It's a strange shift, except as it becomes clear that it's this son of Kish, Saul, he will be the king that the Lord will give to Israel. And in chapters 9 to 10, we really read about his passage to kingship. It's another one of the ripping yarns of 1 Samuel. And make sure you've read it if you haven't already done so. Um, But to give you the summary, Saul and his servant travel through the hill country looking for the donkeys, but with no success. And after some time, Saul decides, we better head back home because otherwise dad's going to be more worried about me than about the donkeys. But the servant suggests, hang on, why don't we ask the prophet Samuel? So they travel to his town. They bump into some girls who just happen to have seen him and know where he was going. And so they follow the directions and they find Samuel. Listen into the conversation between Samuel and Saul. Verse 18 of chapter 9, verse 18. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I am the seer, Saul replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them, they have been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and all your father's family? Imagine being on the end of that statement. Saul went looking for his donkeys, but Samuel tells him, did you see it? He tells him, but all of Israel are looking for him. The desire of Israel is turned to him and his family. And Saul's reply in verse 21, Saul answered, but I'm not a Benjamite. Sorry, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Saul's in the dark, isn't he, about what's happening? He's certainly not seeking any crown. He's looking for a donkey. And then Samuel invites him to a meal. And they spend time talking, we read. And the next day Saul is preparing to leave when Samuel tells him that he has a message from God. Let's pick it up in chapter 10 and verse 1. 10 verse 1. Good to hear pages turning. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? At that moment... Saul became the anointed one in Israel, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the anointed one. The Lord had chosen Saul to become king. And then Samuel gives very precise instructions and predictions to Saul. Let's read them together. Verse 2. I'll read them. You can listen. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin, and they will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? 
Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. And as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes and harps being played before them. And they will will be prophesying. The spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power and you will prophesy with them and you will be changed into a different person. Now, did you notice they are very precise instructions and predictions, aren't they? Three men. Uh, Sorry, two men and what they'll say, three men carrying goats, bread and wine, a procession of prophets. Samuel is giving Saul signs that indeed the Lord has chosen him. In fact, if we step back a little, take one step back from the whole narrative so far, we should be able to see how the sovereign hand of the Lord is evident in all that's happened. The donkey's being lost, the servant's suggestion, the meeting with the girls who just happened to have come from Samuel, and so on, and so on, and so on. The Lord really seems to be going out of his way to make this bad king idea work. Which is strange, don't you think? Why is the Lord being so cooperative in all of this? In fact, later, if we were to keep on reading in chapter 10 and verse 9, we'd see that God indeed changed Saul's heart, fulfilling all the signs, and then in verse 10, the Spirit of God came upon Saul in power. His anointing with oil was accompanied by him being anointed by the Spirit of God. Why is the Lord helping so much with an idea that he clearly disapproved of? Well, the answer, in fact, lies back in chapter 9, And verses 15, 16 and 17. It's one of those passages we've noticed a couple of times before. They don't quite fit in the flow of the story. You might not notice they're missing if they're not there. But in fact, they are really important. So point three in your outline and come with me back to chapter 9 and verse 15. See if they help us. Let me read. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. You see it? Why did the Lord choose Saul? Why did he go out of his way to bring Saul and Samuel together? Why did he anoint him with his spirit? Well, it's a scandalous answer, really. It's a scandalous answer. It was because of his mercy. It was because the Lord felt compassion for his people. The Lord felt compassion for the very same people who had spat in his face. The Lord, you see, refused to reject the people of his promise. The Lord was faithful even to faithless people. Isn't that scandalous? Isn't that wonderful? The Lord shows mercy to rebellious people. See what he says there? I have looked upon my people for their cry has reached me. Friends, please don't hear me saying that the Lord was overlooking their rejection of him. 
He wasn't. It's just that with the Lord, mercy triumphs over judgment. His mercy, his compassion is like on a hair trigger. He is faithful even to faithless people. And that's the wonder of the gospel of Christ, isn't it? Think about Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We'll have a think about 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the mercy, the love, the compassion that we see so clearly and gloriously in the Lord Jesus and his saving death and resurrection on our behalf, we can see it here too. I have looked upon my people. I've heard their cry. The Lord chose Saul, anointed Saul, empowered Saul out of mercy for his rebellious people. And so it's no surprise really once we've seen that, that we, it's no surprise to see the success of the Lord's chosen king. Chapter 11, a bit of a jump, but we're back on track now. Chapter 11, verse 1, worth looking at. Chapter 11, verse 1, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabeth Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all of Israel. I warned you he was nasty, remember? He's not much of a negotiator. He's lacking that sort of negotiating skill, I think. But he presents the first real test for this king that the Lord had chosen for his people. Have a look at verse 4 of chapter 11. Verse 4, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, What's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Saul is the Lord's anointed, you see. He is empowered by the Spirit of God. And as we read on, he delivers the Israelites. Jump across to verse 11. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Notice the irony here, please, folks. The people were scared of Nahash. They placed their confidence in a human king to save them. They rejected the Lord, the only one who really could truly save them. And in mercy, he heard their cry, gave them a king, and through that king, delivered his people. That's scandalous, don't you reckon? I mean, the Israelites didn't deserve that. And no, they didn't. That is exactly the point. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is faithful. And that's the lesson that Samuel seeks to drive home 
in what happens next. Because at the end of chapter 11, Samuel points out to the people there in verse 13, verse 13, that it was the Lord who rescued Israel that day. It was the Lord who rescued you. And then he calls them to Gilgal for a special purpose. Verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship. Okay, Samuel calls a kingship reaffirmation conference, or better, a kingdom renewal conference. And the question is, what kingdom? Whose kingdom? Because certainly as soon as they get to Gilgal, Saul is confirmed as king. But as Samuel begins to speak, you know, as Samuel begins to speak in chapter 12, he actually has a far more important kingdom and a far more important king in mind. Point four on your outline Verse 6 of chapter 12. We're on board? We're following the action? A yes from somewhere would be good at that point. Okay, good. Chapter 12, verse 6. We're jumping into Samuel's speech. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. He's going to do a retelling of history. It's a good one. Let's, let's read it. Verse 8. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in there in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned, we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you lived securely. See what he's doing? Samuel is giving them a neat retelling of both the faithless history of Israel and the faithful history of the Lord. And as we've seen, the events of the chapters we're looking at this morning, they fit perfectly the pattern. Verse 12, But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. See, just as the Lord had heard the cries of his people and raised up Gideon and Barak and Jephthah, In the book of Judges, even Samuel, so he had chosen Saul. He had set Saul as king over them. He had demonstrated his faithfulness once more. But here's the warning. The warning is never, ever, ever mistake the Lord's mercy for meekness. Never, ever, ever mistake the Lord's mercy for meekness. Because Samuel went on to remind them the Lord is not only faithful, but fearsome. Verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. Folks, let me say it again. It is always dangerous to mistake the Lord's mercy for meekness. Because that's what we saw last time, wasn't it? The Lord is not tame, remember? He is wild. He has teeth. 
You do not mess with him. You obey him. You fear him. You serve him. He is the Lord. And Israel needed to learn that lesson. Saul needed to learn that lesson. For you see, now as king, Saul stands as the representative of the people. And so Saul as king must especially be obedient to the Lord. Otherwise, the Lord's hand would be against him. More of that next week. But for now, the Israelites, you see, they had to reaffirm the kingdom. The kingdom not of Saul, but of God. They had to reaffirm that it was the Lord who was their true king. They had to repent of their seeking help somewhere else. And to help, with them, help them with that, the Lord gave them a bit of a visual aid. Check it out in verse 16. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The massive cracks of thunder, the pouring rain on the wheat harvest, a sign of both the faithfulness of the Lord and the fearsomeness of the Lord. The faithfulness of the Lord and the fearsomeness of the Lord as their crops were, were watered. The very things, remember, they, they, they sought after those other false gods for rain from the heavens. The Lord sends, but he sends as a warning of both his faithfulness and his fearsomeness. And the Israelites' response there is a good one, I reckon. They stood in awe of the might and the grace of the Lord. That's a great response because he is both faithful and fearsome. And with the thunder still echoing in their ears, with the rain pouring down around them, they should have been thinking, how could we possibly have looked anywhere else for help? How could we possibly have thought there was help anywhere other than the Lord? And brothers and sisters, I hope you can see where we're heading with all this. Because you know what? The Israelites were shown a thunderstorm and pelting rain and military victory, all signs pointing to the fearsome faithfulness of the Lord. But you know what? The Lord has given to us a far more potent, a far more glorious, a far more enduring sign of his fearsome faithfulness. Don't you reckon? The cross of his own dear son. As we look to the cross of the Christ... The true Christ, Jesus, we ought to be able to see with stark clarity the fearsome faithfulness of the Lord to his people. The cross of Christ is the public eternal proclamation that the Lord is for his people. He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. How could we possibly sit here this morning and think that he would not also, along with Christ, graciously give us all things how could we possibly think that how could we possibly think that the lord god is not the source of our help and yet we do don't we we're just like the israelites trouble comes and we immediately grab for anything other than the lord we are consumed by earthly help in psalm 121 remember the question is posed where does my help come from? 
And in the psalm, it's immediately answered, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And of course, as we read Psalm 121 as a Christian person, we can add to that, can't we? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and the father of our Lord and saviour, Jesus Christ. Because he is our help. And what a help he is. Jot down 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 7, if you're taking notes, or even if you're not, just jot down 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 7. And that's the verse I want you to be pondering this week. Let me read it to you. It's a great command and a comfort that the Apostle Peter passes on to us. He says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. How great is that? The Lord God is our fearsome and faithful helper. Whatever it is that might at this moment be causing you to fear, whatever it is that might be distressing you, whatever it is that's causing you heartache, humble yourself before the Lord. Cast your anxiety onto him. He is the mighty one. His hand is mighty. Turn first to him because you know what? He cares for you. He cares for you, just you, me. He cares for you and he will lift you up in due time. Notice, folks, he may not answer your prayers exactly in the way that you want him to, but you can know this, he will answer your prayers in exactly the right way for you. Because you know what? He is indisputably for you. He's on your side. He's in your corner. Look to the cross and see his fearsome faithfulness proclaimed. Our confidence is that in all things in life, in every single thing in life, both good and bad, in every single thing in life, God is at work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8. So, brothers and sisters, put not your trust in earthly princes or kings or in human solutions. Put your trust in the fearsome and faithful Lord God. Because we lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and the father of our Lord and saviour, Jesus Christ our Heavenly Father, who cares for us. How about we pray? Why don't you take a moment to um, thank your Heavenly Father that he cares for you, that he is for you, And maybe you need to say sorry for looking somewhere else for help. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your might and for your help. We thank you for your holiness and your sovereignty. We thank you for your mercy. Forgive us, please, Father, for so often worrying about things and trying to grab control of things and thinking that it's down to us. We're sorry, Father, so often we look somewhere else, someone else, for our help. So slow to pray. So slow to trust that you'll answer our prayers. We thank you for your promises in Scripture, the promises of you, the promises of your help. And we ask that you'd help us to believe them and to live by them. Father, keep on casting our minds and our hearts to the cross of Christ and convince us, please, of your fearsome faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.